In the name of the Father and the Son and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. There are several motifs that repeat themselves over and over again in the scriptures, and one of those is really central to our parable this morning. It revolves around the generous hospitality of a host who wants to give a party and the response of those who are invited to such graciousness. Really, I can think of no better image for our understanding of God than one who wants to throw a party. Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, one of the great theologians of the 20th century, uh, once said that he got started on his own individual pilgrimage when he was all of 14 years old, and someone posed the question, why something and not nothing? In other words, why does anything exist? Well, if you let the scriptures be your resource here, uh, the answer is clear. And that is that at some point in the time before time, the creator uh, said to God's self, you know, this thing that I am, it is, it is just too good to keep to myself. I want others to get in on the ecstasy of my kind of aliveness. So the Bible is clear. God didn't create to get something for God's self, but rather to give something of God's self. And here's where the metaphor of the host who wants to throw a party is so appropriate. God didn't have to create. God chose to. The very best kind of parties are not those that are given out of obligation. I mean, truth be told, some are thrown for that reason. But the best are when a, a gracious host has an abundance and then wants to share that with others. One way to think of the creation is to think of it as the party that God has chosen to throw so that we can get, on, get in on some of God's kind of aliveness, so that we can know the joy of becoming party givers ourselves. So our story begins with this familiar note. A host has a house and food and abundance, and this host wants to share it with others. But then, of course, the story takes a surprising turn. The generosity of the party giver is not met with gratitude. Amazingly, those who have received invitations begin to snub the host. He sends out his chauffeur-driven limousine, um, and they begin to make all kinds of excuses about why they cannot attend. And here's where there is yet another parable to the creation story. Because remember... Uh, as early as the third chapter of Genesis, it becomes clear that what God intended for the creation and what followed are, are not the same thing at all. Early on in the biblical story, the shadow of evil falls straight across the good intentions of God. Where did that evil come from, we wonder? Why has it been allowed to exist in the first place? But to put it bluntly, if God is all that God is cracked up to be, if God is really all good, if God is really all powerful, as the Bible seems to imply, why is there so much in God's creation that produces so much pain and destructiveness? 
Couldn't such a God have structured things in such a way as to have prevented all of this? It's really the hardest question that believing people have to face. Just as, incidentally, the reality of good is the hardest issue that a non-believer has to face. I mean, the atheist has to account for someone like a Mother Teresa or a St. Francis, or for that matter, one who helps on a rebuilding project or hosts homeless people for the South Oaken Shelter. The atheist has to account for the beauty and the purpose in life. The believer's dilemma is the evil that we find in the world. No issue has produced more debate across the centuries. You may have encountered Rabbi Harold Kushner's bestseller, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. You remember that he said if the title had been Why Bad Things Happen to Good People, it would have been a very short work, just three words, I don't know. Well, Kushner takes the approach that many have adopted, arguing that we have to alter the ancient's concept of God in order to account for the evil in the world. He believes that of the three assertions, God is all-powerful, God is all-good, and there is evil in the world, that you can really only have two of those simultaneously. So we can say that evil is real and that God is all-powerful, but then God can't be all-good or else God would surely do something to eliminate the evil. Or we can say, Evil exists and God is all good, but then there must be some deficiency in God's power because the evil that God wants to eliminate, he can't. There is, of course, a third alternative, one that Christian scientists accept, and that is that evil doesn't really exist, it's just an illusion, which, of course, leaves the other two images of God intact. But in all honesty, in a world that has known a holocaust and ethnic cleansings and slavery and its repercussions, tragedies like 9-11, can anyone realistically believe that all of the violence and evil in the world is just in our heads? Now, Rabbi Kushner, of course, opts for the first combination. He concludes that the problem actually lies in God's power, that God just like us, is up against what he calls the randomness in the world that even God cannot master. And there are others who have thought the same way. Woody Allen once said, I'm not saying there is no God. I'm simply saying that if one does exist, he's an underachiever. Now, we're not going to solve the problem of evil uh, in this morning's worship service, But I do think our parable this morning gives us another insight, another perspective. And in order to get at that, we have to go back and ask ourselves, what was God's intention in creating the world and creating us in the first place? I take my theological North Star here from something that Jesus said. You remember, he said, I came that you might have joy and that your joy might be complete. In other words, God's 
intention in creating us was to allow us to get on, on, on his kind of joy, the ecstasy of his kind of aliveness. Well, of course, that raises the question, what would God have to do to make that reality possible? If you think about it, God would have to give us some power, right? Because part of God's joy was being able to do what God intended. And God would have to give us some freedom. Because again, part of God's joy was finally choosing to create and then taking delight in what God created. So God would have to give us some power and some freedom. But you see, implicit in those gifts is that that power and freedom could be used not just positively, but negatively. It could be used to bring joy to others, but it could also be used for purely selfish gain that might actually bring suffering to others. Remember that evil is just live spelled backwards. And it grows out of the very possibilities that had to exist in order for us to experience the kind of joy that God intended for us. So instead of blaming God for all the evil in the world, Shakespeare said, it's not the fault of the stars. The fault is in us for the way we misuse our power and our freedom. Because in the end, God's love is never coercive. God cannot make us be joyful. So returning to the parable, the host did all that he could to set the stage for joy. What he did not have the power to do was to coerce his guests and make them enjoy what he had provided for them. Why did they choose not to? Why would those who have been created for joy choose to turn away? I'm not sure there is a logical explanation. Maybe that's why the Bible talks about the mystery of iniquity. Why it happens, none of us can finally say. That it happens, and that you and I participate in that, really, who could deny? So, what took place when the desire of the party giver was thwarted. Well, you notice the first thing, his first reaction was anger. And really, can you blame him? People get very uncomfortable talking about the wrath of God these days, um, thinking, I think very superficially, that you know the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and the God of the New Testament is a God of love which is not only a mistaken understanding of the Bible, but also a mistaken understanding of love. The opposite of love is not anger. It's indifference, right? We never get angry about something that is unimportant to us. The host in the story is angry because he cares about his guests. So the host's response is not to turn against his original guests. Rather, it is to expand the guest list. So he, send his, he sends his servants out to the highways and the byways, to the poor and the lame, those who were not initially invited. 
because they were thought to be unworthy. And of course, there is a part of the story here that has an historical dimension. Jesus was constantly in trouble with the religious authorities of his day because of the company he kept, because he welcomed the unwelcome, the outcasts. But notice that while the host is saddened and hurt that those who were invited refused, it is not like the door is closed to them. The Jewish people were the first ones to be invited by God to come. They were the chosen people. God said to Abraham, I want to bless you, and then through you, all the families of the earth. So one of the reasons for the party, you see, was that the party goers would learn to become party givers. They would share the blessing. But when they refused this second part of the invitation, God didn't disinherit them. In the very next chapter of Luke, we find one of Jesus' most famous parables, the parable of the prodigal son. You'll remember the elder son, there are two sons in this story, who represents the Jewish authorities of his time. He is the firstborn, and he cannot understand why his father would throw a party for his younger brother, who has done nothing to deserve it. You remember the father's response. Son, he says to the elder brother, you are always with me. All that I have is yours. The father cannot make the elder brother come to the party, but the invitation is never withdrawn. There is nothing you can do to make God love you any more than God already loves you. There is nothing you will ever do to make God stop loving you. Once a child, always a child. And yet, we must never miss the note of warning that is inherent in the story. Mark it down. With all of God's heart, God wants us to come to this party of joy. At the same time, it is possible to miss the party altogether. We can miss it because of our own arrogance, because of the way we misuse our freedom and our power, or we can miss it because we are so caught up in our everyday routines that we confuse the good with the best. Did you notice that of the excuses that were given, Two of them are about work. One of them is about family. In other words, there are ways to miss the party that are not blatantly evil. Which reminds me of a story that I heard a while back. It was told by a Lutheran pastor, and it almost immediately became a parable for me. Listen. Herman closed the front door gently, took off his coat and hung it in the closet. He unzipped his overshoes, first the one and then the other, slid them off and bent down to put them in the closet. There, a wild jumble of boots and rubbers confronted him. Muttering under his breath, he began to sort them out and arrange them two by two. 
Then he carefully placed his own side by side in the last square inch of space and tried to close the door. But it wouldn't close. A parker had been jammed in hurriedly and was blocking the door. Herman methodically rearranged the coats and jackets. Then he closed the door gently. For one flashing moment, he thought, why didn't I just slam that door? Why didn't I just throw my overshoes on top of the heap like everybody else? But it was only a momentary spasm. One just doesn't do things that way, he said to himself. The house was strangely quiet. The cat meowed plaintively and rubbed against his leg. He stooped over and patted her. Hello, Mrs. Beasley. Funny name for a cat. But Tammy had insisted on calling her Mrs. Beasley after she had seen a television doll commercial. I wanted to call her Whiskers or Tabby, but Tammy insisted on Mrs. Beasley. The cat followed him to the refrigerator. He poured some milk into her dish and opened a new can of cat food. Where is everybody? he asked the cat as he spooned out food into her dish. Then Herman closed the refrigerator door gently. Last minute shopping, I guess. He mused about it as he went upstairs to take off his clothes. Lorraine is always shopping at the last minute, he thought to himself. Well, not always, but a good bit of the time. Probably wieners and beans for dinner tonight. He was mildly irritated. The bedroom was a shambles. Lorraine's slacks and blouse were thrown on the bed. The closet doors were flung open. A dress hung askew on a crooked hanger. Her shoes had obviously been quickly rummaged through. He sighed and opened his closet door gently. He hung his suit away, then carried his shirt to the clothes hamper in the bathroom. He had to push Tammy's sneakers off the mat as he hung up her towel. He scooped up her play clothes and crammed them together with his shirt into the hamper. Life would be so much easier if people would just take a little time to be more tidy. It would make my job easier, too, he thought, as he ran the water into the sink. He had to plan his day. This was Herman's way. The only way he could manage to retain any semblance of sanity. But then inevitably somebody would come along and disrupt his plans. Suddenly, a great weariness came over him. As he leaned on his hands in the water, random thoughts began to flicker through his mind. Would the company expand or relocate? Maybe they would have to move. Jennings would really like my job. He's a manipulator. The house needs painting. Has the washing machine been repaired? I wonder how much it was. Tammy's tooth is loose. Maybe it will drop out. Jennings has just built a new house. His payments must be off the roof. No wonder he wants my job. At least Lorraine sews some of her own clothes. That's a help. We've got to throw a party soon. Lots of invitations to pay back. Oh, 
the pledge card from the church has come. Hmm. I wonder if we'll get any tax breaks this year. Didn't get anything done today that I planned. That dumb Jennings, he messed up my whole afternoon, had to drop everything and go to some special meeting to consider his harebrained ideas. How does anybody expect me to get my work done with all of these interruptions? He dressed and closed his closet door gently. He picked up Lorraine's slacks and blouse and hung them away. Poor girl. I know she gets fed up with her daily routines, breakfasts, cleaning, having to get Tammy off to kindergarten, washing, ironing. I know she'd like to get out more. At least I get to see grown-ups every day. This house must be like a prison to her. He closed her closet door gently and went downstairs. Mrs. Beasley rubbed his leg as he picked her up. Six o'clock. Wherever could they be? He started through the mail. And it was then that he saw the note. Herman, we waited until five for you and then just had to leave. Please get a cab and join us. You missed Tammy's birthday last year. Try not to miss it again this year. Lorraine. Tammy's birthday party at a restaurant that caters to such things. They had planned it together. He had been a little reluctant at first, but okay, the sixth birthday is a milestone. And he could just see Tammy that very morning saying, Daddy, you'll be there, won't you? He had given her a really big hug. He looked at the clock, 6.15, Somewhere in his soul, Herman heard a door slam shut. The kingdom of heaven, so it is said, is like the time that a man received an invitation. Even conscientious Hermans can miss the party because they confuse the good with the best. We've all been invited, brothers and sisters. Please, don't let anything cause you to overlook or forget that. Please. Amen.